to get to work with you today. We're going to be in Matthew 5, if you have a Bible or a device you brought. And while you're turning there, Ben's going to come up a little bit later and give all the details on it. But we have a partners meeting today. Um, I'm real excited about that and some of the things that we're going to get to cover. Um, I've been asked a few times by a few people, hey, we're on our way to partnership. We're ready for the next class, but it doesn't start for a few weeks. Is this a, is this a meeting that we could go to knowing that we're going to be in this class um, whenever it starts? And I'd say this time, yeah, typically uh, we would probably say no. If we're dealing with family business, um, it's more of a closed door issue. So if it's like a church discipline or we're having to work through something very tough, that would be something that we would only want there to be partners there. But we're not really addressing anything today. Um, that would be odd or inappropriate for a non-partner yet a steady attender to hear. So if that's you, we'd love to have you today. I mean, worst case scenario, it's like Willy Wonka's factory on the back table with all the desserts and pies and cakes and cookies and stuff like that. So worst case scenario, you get some dessert out of it. So let's look at Matthew 5. This is going to be a helpful passage. I'll explain why in just a moment. This is the word of the Lord for us today in which we're going to see Christ very clearly. Matthew 5, verse 21 and forward, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember, your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Okay, so just be vulnerable for a quick minute. This is a sermon I've been dreading for a few weeks now, okay? Not because it's poorly crafted, not because I don't like the passage, but because anger is hard, right? I'm appreciative. I've always been thankful that Legacy has been a church that I can preach from and not be perfect. You've never expected me to show up and be perfectly integrated in everything that I say. I've always appreciated that this is an environment where we're both, you and me, both sitting under this Bible and learning as it addresses us as we all grow in real time. And this has never been so important to me as it is in a passage like this because it's been a hard week for me. <laughs> of course, this is the week that I get angry a lot, right? This is the month I get angry quite a bit. Anger's hard. So just know if a sermon like this messes with you, it certainly messed with me first. So can we just all agree that we are a failed people sitting together in deep need of just the remedy of what God gives us? We started a series a few weeks ago on how the gospel reshapes and reformats us as a new kingdom people. And so when I say gospel, just to be very clear with you, I'm not just talking about good news to become saved, although that is good news and that is the gospel. I'm also talking about the good news of God's favor to you through the person of Jesus so that you could be sustained, 
so that you could live today. So the gospel is radically important for how you become a Christian, and then the gospel is also radically important for how you live as a Christian. So we also saw last week that we've been given a new heart. A new heart. We've been, ourselves, reformatted. We saw how in Ezekiel 11, um, an old heart of stone has been pulled from us and we've been given a heart of flesh. And this is a heart that feels, this is a heart that bends, this is a heart that could be broken. And so with this new heart, we have new affections. The things that we used to think were repulsive, we actually think are very beautiful. And some of the things that we used to be attracted to are no longer attractive. That's what happens when our heart is regenerated. I mean, look at this passage in Psalm 119. Stay where you're at. We'll put it up on the screen. But Psalm 119 we see David saying, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Listen, how is this possible without a new heart? Did you ever think about that? I mean, exactly. How, how possible is that without a brand new heart? I mean, we might like God's commands. We might appreciate the statutes. We might be impressed with the weight of what is the Bible, but a delight to us. I mean, it's just a good book on a shelf with other good books. It's not something that we hunger or, or taste with a deep sweetness. This, this requires a regenerated heart. And so with what used to be boring is now fascinating, what used to feel useless has become very useful and beautiful. And now with a new heart, we're not just driven to cower underneath the commands and the statutes of the word. We're actually drawn to enjoy and be enticed and fascinated with what God has given us. We've been reformatted with a new heart and a new beautiful in front of us. And this changes even how we express anger. Even anger is reformatted for the people of God, right? So Jesus is speaking on anger to a pretty wide group. This is probably somewhere near Capernaum. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, but very likely it was probably Sermon by the Hill because they just didn't have any mountains back then. And there was an assortment of people there. There were Pharisees hanging out. There were a lot of Jews that were hanging out. He would have everybody's attention in this moment. He certainly has mine when it comes to anger. Because hear me, we're all angry people, right? It's inaccurate to say, it's not realistic to say, there are some people that are angry people, and then there are people that are not angry people. We are all angry people. We just express our anger differently because we're different people, right? But everybody's anger. And the reason why is because a life of anger is a life that has love in it. You express anger because you have love. So if you have love in your heart, you will have anger from time to time. It's a very real thing. Let me explain. I married an artist, right? Some of my closest friends are artists. I was at the chalk walk yesterday looking at all this cool art all over. It was expressed in chalk all over the ground. Listen, if Kevin wasn't in that, if Kevin had, not, had an entry in that, probably would not have gone. But I married an artist, and I'm surrounded by artists. The irony in that is, is when I was in kindergarten, my very, true story, very first parent-teacher conference over me was my teacher's concern over two things. One, Luke doesn't know how to use scissors. <laughs> I could not use scissors to cut construction paper. Second concern, Luke is eating the glue, right? He's not using the glue unless he's putting it on his skin to make it look like second skin, and then he peels it off. He thinks it's hilarious. He, if he's not eating it, he's doing that, and he doesn't know how to use scissors. So everybody else is creating works of art, and I'm creating a mess, or I'm eating it for whatever reason, right? Because <laughs> I didn't care about art anymore, and I care about something like taxes. But this is something I could tell you for sure about art, right? This is something I could tell you. 
There are primary colors, red, yellow, and blue. Is that impressive yet that I know that? Red and yellow and blue. And any shade or kind of color you see is because of a mixture of those three colors. So if you've grown up in Knoxville, UT orange is not a primary color. It's not. It is because of a mixture of some primary colors. This is why this is important. A lot of people consider anger as a primary emotion, like red, blue, or yellow, like a primary color. It's not. It's not. It's not some primary emotion that we have a lot of shades, ranging from mild frustration all the way to rage. Anger is our response to whatever we feel like is threatening or endangering something we love. Something we love. Anger is connected to your love. If you feel like something is stealing from what you love or breaking what you love or taking or threatening or endangering it, you will get angry, right? That's virtually what anger is. And so if that is our working definition, that means that you can have a right anger, a valid anger, a righteous anger. It's possible to have these things. There's nothing wrong with getting ticked off to an appropriate degree. Let me explain. You find out that somebody takes a dig on your reputation and they slander you in some way, shape, or form, right? Your anger would be understandable. It would be justifiable. It becomes unjustifiable if you can't shrug it off, right? It becomes unjustifiable if you are 10 times angrier at the fact that you have a dent in your reputation than you are angry at the social injustices all around you. Then it becomes an inappropriate anger, maybe even a sinful anger. See, the depth of your anger is going to be determined by two things, the depth of your love for something and the depth of what you perceive the threat to be. That's what makes your anger what it is. So quick example for you, right? If I'm on a dirt trail, whether it's in the Smokies or here in our area, because we have a bunch of them, if I see like some trash out there, because it's usually the middle of the nowhere, maybe like a power bar wrapper or a Mountain Dew can or something like that, it makes me angry. I'll be honest with you, right? Why? Because I have loves. I love creation. I love those trails. It's a little bit of a sanctuary for me, right? I love those things. There's a threat. The threat is some dude could not put that in his pocket, right? Or put it in his bag, or crunch it up, or put it in his bag, he just threw it on the ground, right? So I get angry. But here's the thing, I get over it. I don't snap a picture of it and boost it on Instagram and go on a long rant over the fact that there is someone that dropped a power bar wrapper on a trail in the Smokies. I'm not gonna do that. But there are people that will, right? Why? Because they love that more and they felt like the threat was bigger. So they'll go to city council, they'll, they'll try to get something all in motion to keep people from doing something like that. Or if you're sitting behind somebody at a red light and they miss their window to turn on the green arrow because they're what? They're on their phone scrolling, right? They missed their window. They're looking at the scores. They're seeing the Texas Tech one, right? They're excited about that, but now they didn't take their left and you're sitting there again. Honk the horn and you get angry. Why? Because they threatened your time. They took some of your time away. You feel a little disrespected a little bit too, right? They're, they're not even concerned about anyone but themselves. So you're angry. But here's the thing, you get over it, don't you? Eventually. Unless you don't. Some people don't. And it ends up ruining their day. And they'll follow that person until they get all the way to where they're going. And they'll get out and they will let them know. They will let them know. It'll be rage. Think about all the babies in a womb today that will never be born because of abortion. It should make you angry. Why? Because we love life. 
Think about sex trafficking. Should enrage us as a church. Why? Because we love life. We love God. We love being in the image of God. We love the sanctity of life. We, I mean, there's so many things that we can say we love, we love, we love, and that threatens it. That hurts it. Unless it doesn't elicit that anger in us. Unless we don't feel like that, right? I mean, think about it. You see, it can be inappropriate in our anger when we are not angry enough. If pornography or opioids could just rip through a young generation and all it gets from us is a yawn, then we're sinning by not being angry. It's inappropriate, non-anger anger. Just to say, anger is not a sin. Sinful anger is a sin. That's a big distinction you've got to make from the get-go. But Jesus isn't even speaking to justifiable anger. He's taking aim at a different kind of anger, an inappropriate anger, an unjustifiable one, where we explode on people around us, where we withdraw, where we pout, where we seethe, where we're silently vindictive and bitter, when we insult others, when we just refuse to reconcile with others. This is a different kind of anger. He's not saying it's as bad as murder. He says it leads to something external like murder. When we sin in inappropriate anger, it's because we believe that our love for ourselves is being threatened. Something is being taken away from us. It could be your time, your talent, your treasure, your comfort, your power, your glory, your approval. Something is being dented. And there's a flurry, dozens of forms of anger that comes about, right? Let's look at the first two verses. I'm going to go back. It's such a short little passage. Just 21 and 22. Christ says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Okay. Jesus is starting this off the same way he's going to address three or four other points in this same Sermon on the Mount. He says, you grew up hearing, but I'm going to say something different. You guys grew up being groomed to think this way. I'm going to reformat that a little bit, right? Why is he doing that? Because he's speaking to a set of listeners that are used to following external laws that kind of determined how they would be pure on the outside. They would look pure a certain way to other people around them. And here, the bar was always murder. Don't murder. That's the bar. Pretty low bar, though, right? It's a pretty low bar. I've never been jammed up in life because I couldn't hide a dead body. Never happened to me. And I've had some crazy calls and text messages over almost 22 years of ministry. None of them from a person that was a pervasive murderer and just could not quit murdering people. I know they're out there. It's, a, it's the fringe of the bell curve. It's not a serious, it, let's just say the bar is low for God's people. Okay, to not murder. But the Pharisees were able to hide their hate because they never killed anyone. They could harbor bitterness and seethe vindictively because there were no bodies laying around. So somebody could come into the room and a Pharisee or a scribe or just any basic Jew could look and see that person and say, I hate that person. I triple hate that person. Man, if God would let me get away with one thing, I'd shank that guy and such. I mean, I can't stand that guy. Triple hate him, you know. It would be okay as long as they didn't do something to the person, right? It's crazy. It's interesting. So Jesus says even the hate that comes before murder is a sin. Even that thing that's in your heart is a sin. So what Christ does, and he does this not just here, but he does it through the whole Sermon on the Mount, is he's relocating 
He's relocating purity. Purity has been relocated from what we look at in our behavior, look like in our behavior, to what's going on in our heart and how we feel. As a team saying earlier, from the inside out, now even the best behaviors in the world would be indicted. They would feel guilty, right? I know it's easy to do that whenever you read something like this, to feel that indictment. It's one of the reasons that Jesus felt a lot of the anger that he's preaching against right now. You see, unjustifiable and inappropriate anger is sin that could lead to external things like murder. And I know the biggest pushback is just that that sounds dramatic. Luke, come on. I mean, I've hated people hard. I've never killed them. Never murdered anyone like that. I've never done anything like that. I hear you, but can we agree that sinful anger is where it begins? That's where it begins. Your anger does manifest. I mean, we've all heard the stories. Somebody gets cut off. Guy gets cut off. Guy gets the finger. Guy gets run into the shoulder. Guys get out. Throat punches, choke holds. Someone gets a bat. Somebody gets a gun. Somebody ends up dead. And how did it start? Someone angry in their gut. That started off just from anger. It didn't get from zero to 60 off of zero anger. It got there because of anger. What about when you, tell me about when you have found yourself doing something externally where anger has manifested, whether you've punched a hole in some drywall, you've thrown a remote, you've kicked the dog, you've screamed, you've slandered, you've threatened, you've posted something, you've done something externally. Was it not because there was anger in your heart? Certainly it was. Certainly it was. Something was taken from you. Dignity, glory, safety, honor, Reputation, time, money, something you loved, something you treasured, and something threatened it. Something threatened it. And you end up doing a very bad impersonation of yourself. So as toddlers, how do we handle that as toddlers? We bite each other, right? Bite, punch, pull hair, we do things like that. What happens when you grow up and you're in your teens, you're in high school? It turns into slander, insults, turns into fistfights. Maybe some more biting, depends what kind of fight you're in. <laughs> I was in some fights in school that if someone got bit, totally would have understood it, right? What about when you're young adults? Turns into withdrawal, pouting, a little bit more slander. Of course, it's got to be more subtle because you're holier, right? What happens whenever you're a more mature adult? It turns into this deep-seated vindictiveness and bitterness that no one will get over. I mean, I'm being very general. We all have different personalities. So the shape of our anger is going to look very different, right? It's not that some people are angry and some people aren't. We're all angry. And we can all sin in our anger. In fact, look at this passage. This is a, stay where you're at. You, this will be up on the screen. I love this passage. This is in Hebrews. Just as a reminder, we don't really know exactly who wrote Hebrews. Some say it was Apollos. I'm fine with that. That doesn't bother me. But it's really wise how, how the author of Hebrews says this in verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no, and this is in quotes, root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. This is going to be on our dashboard for the rest of the sermon. This is going to be a very, very important passage for us, right? Because the author of Hebrews is using a metaphor of a root system, the root of bitterness, right? I don't know if you've ever dug up a tree before. Me and my bride, our first home, had a pecan tree in the backyard that had to come up. 
Um, and so when I dug that up, I was shocked. I was, I was amazed how far those roots went. They went everywhere. They went forever. I mean, it felt like 20 or 30 feet under the sidewalk, under a fence. Those roots go everywhere. There are still trees you cannot plant in West Texas because the roots are so efficient at going around drainage pipes and circling them and crushing them and ruining everybody's, their, their drainage, right? It's amazing how those roots can reach and twist and curl and grab and steal nourishment and do all kinds of things. And this is the metaphor that we have. And the author of Hebrews says that this root of bitterness will do three things. It will cause trouble, it will ruin you, it will defile those around you, which means it will ruin others, and it will make it hard for people to see God accurately. It'll ruin your witness, right? It'll ruin you, ruin the people around you, and it will ruin your witness. This is basically what this author is saying. I don't know what that looks for you. I, I don't know what the shape of your anger looks like. And I think we can all assume a variety of shapes, right? I think the most obvious form we're used to thinking is rage, right? Something, something deeply loved was confronted deeply, and rage comes out. And whenever we see it, we're always like, wow, that is a, what, an angry person. We usually see it on YouTube. Someone's fritzing out at a customer service counter, didn't get what they wanted. They end up crawling across the counter and ripping stuff over, and they end up, of course, now it's viral. Listen, we say, that is a crazy person. That is an angry person. It's rage, right? That's rage. Now, when it happens inside the church, we excuse it and we call it passionate. That's a passionate person, right? And I would agree. I mean, passionate people are going to be given to rage a little bit faster, right? But hear me. God does not smile upon the hole in drywall, does not find himself very excited over our toddlers who are scared to be in the same room with us. It's not helpful for us to say, well, you know, he's just so passionate, though. I mean, he is a one on the Enneagram, right? It doesn't matter what your disc or your disc 2.0 or your Myers-Briggs or your Enneagram or your Strength Finders or any of the 19 tests you can find on Facebook now. It doesn't matter what it says about how passionate you are. We don't give a hall pass to rage. Jesus is very clear here. Passion is great. And listen, if you're a passionate person in the room, man, listen, that is a gift of God. You are going to be able to express the joy and the celebration of God more than the average person. When people see you as a passionate person, they're going to see things in you that they probably aren't going to see in me. You're going to be able to image God far different than I can image God. That is a gift of God, and it still has the potential to burn everything down in front of a live audience, doesn't it? leaving the passionate person to feel a load of shame afterward. A more subtle, but not better, outward, just maybe an outward expression of anger, and you'll have to hang on for this one. It's when you and I become swift experts where someone else is weak. Where someone else is weak. We see ourselves as strong. We perceive our, ourselves as strong in the same area that we see somebody else is weak. And whenever we take our strength and we line it up with somebody's weakness, it helps us feed our anger. We justify our anger because they can't keep up and it's such a simple thing, right? We catch ourselves using statements like always or never, very extreme statements, and it sounds like this. I always clean up the dishes you never do. I always take out the trash, you guys never do. I'm always on time, they never are. You line up your strength 
with their weakness, and it feels like you're giving yourself a free pass on just feeding and nurturing a deep-seated anger. Listen, if this is you, that is why people feel tense around you, right? There's no peace. That won't build romance around you or intimacy or best friends or joy or vulnerability or grace. Just legalism in comparison and anger, right? So bitterness can look vocal. Bitterness can look very out and just crazy. And sometimes, and I think even more dangerously, it could be very quiet and stubborn and vindictive. I mean, certainly less explosive, but for months or for even years, are we not all capable of just hating somebody and being angry so much that we just want them to hurt? We don't just want them to hurt, we want their soul to hurt. We want them to feel haunted for what they have done to us. And if we find out that they need help, we won't give it. And if there's ever an opportunity that we can take a swing at them, we will. We hear their name come up in a conversation, we take a shot at it. Slander shows up to things like that. And because this is a bit more behind the scenes, we don't see a very clear problem in it. We tend to think as a church that this is standard operating procedure because of the world that we live in today, that this is totally fine. It's totally fine to hold a grudge, nurse a grudge, just don't be angry. But it is anger. It is anger. It's inappropriate. It's unjustifiable. Leads to murder, maybe not by a gun, but we murder their soul every chance we get. And listen, I'm not above this. I am not above this. And I know that we can dress it up, right? Build excuses and convince ourselves that we're not doing it, and then we can convince others that we're not even angry. I'm not even angry. Totally fine. Nothing wrong here. Nothing to see here. Now, here's one of the ways we know we might be struggling in that kind of vindictive bitterness. We withdraw from those from whom we were deeply angered by. It's a form of punishment. We're basically punishing them from having the pleasure of our presence. That's what the silent treatment is, too, by the way, right? It's also what pouting is. Pouting is anger. Pouting is anger. What's wrong with you? Nothing. Are you sure? Yep. It's anger. How is that better than rage? How is it better than insults? It's not. It shouldn't get a pass. Because we could still ruin ourselves, we could still ruin those around us, and we can still very much so ruin our witness. By the way, this is why people leave the church, the local church. Someone hurts them, they get angry, they might be vocal about it, but they definitely withdraw, right? They definitely withdraw. And that's why sometimes when you walk into a room and you know they are there, you will turn around and walk right back out, right? And if you know that they were going to be there, you wouldn't have even gone, right? So this is anger. This anger just as much as chunking the remote. And I think if I just could maybe point to one more hidden kind of anger, and it's hidden, but it's hidden out in the open a little bit. I think it bears worth mentioning anyway, the people that struggle with just being perpetually jaded, always jaded, always bored with what other people take the light in. If someone thinks it's awesome, they think it's meh, and they're going to let you know about it, right? No matter how spectacular the moment is, 
They're gonna throw wet water or cold water all over all of it. They're just gonna crank it down a few notches. I can so totally be this guy, right? And I can hate this guy all at the same time. I told you this sermon messed with me. I am this guy and I can't stand this guy. Unable to celebrate the beauty and the joy of what God has given us because we are just angry, we start quenching the enthusiasm of everybody around us. It's really a subtle attempt to recruit people to be as jaded as we are, like an anger evangelist when we do this, right? Just out of pure resentment, we just want to point out what is not awesome about what everybody else thinks is very awesome, right? You hate it when people do this around you too, don't you? Me and Miranda were talking earlier about how fast we bought tickets for Endgame, Marvel Endgame, here in a couple weeks. She beat me by a few hours. <laughs> I didn't get near as good a seats as she did, I promise. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. This is a good example, right? Haven't even seen the movie yet. I haven't seen any of the 305 minutes of that movie, right? And I already know it's better than the other 21. I already know it. It's going to be one of the best movies I've seen in the whole cinematic universe, right? So I don't care what you think about the movie. Don't come to me and say, well, it was all right, but they, they didn't stick to the comics. I don't want to hear it. It was all right, but if they'd have just done it, I mean, it's okay, but there are better movies out there. It's not interesting. And what we're not saying, what I'm not saying, is that your differing opinion makes you an angry person. I'm saying that if your normal posture is ripping down what other people celebrate, there's something jaded and angry inside of you. It's hidden. We all see it, but it's still hidden, right? Maybe you don't see it. You see, Jesus wants us to have freedom in our heart. Because let me tell you, just like lust, anger will own you. Hear me, friends. It will ruin you. Anger will own and it will ruin you. Families are destroyed for generations over this. People not talking to family for decades. You'll end up alone, mad at everything, never having joy. And the enemy of your soul only needs an inch for this. He'll take whatever he can get. If you're a rageaholic, he'll take it. He'll work with it. If, you, if you're more silent and vindictive, oh, he'll work with that too. He just needs a little bit. Just needs a little bit, right? These are just a few of the fruits of that root of bitterness. I mean, can we just all agree on one thing? You could probably do a series just on different ways of being angry. I mean, I picked four of like probably 30 or something like that, and none of these are great strategies when it comes to dealing with anger appropriately. None of them are, right? But it's interesting how Jesus continues in this passage by giving us a strategy to dealing with anger and not just handing us a strategy, but actually showing us in the strategy how it's shaped like the cross. There is a gospel formation even in this. It's really beautiful how he does this. So go back to your passage. We're going to look at verse 23. Jesus goes on to say, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, <clears throat> leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and then the judge to the guard, and then you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Okay, if we could squunch all of that into one sentence, what he is saying is deal with anger quickly because it's a primary issue, and get it done before it gets dumb and out of control. That's what he's talking about when it's going to court and judges and guards and throwing it 
just deal with it quickly. This is a primary issue. Take care of it before it gets dumb and out of control. And what I love about this passage is that Christ is speaking to those who may have provoked anger, not to the angry people. Did you catch that? Now in Mark, if you go and read Mark, it's swapped. Jesus is addressing angry people. But here, he's addressing people that might have made somebody angry. Why is he doing that? That's how serious God is about the destructive power of anger in the church. That's how serious he is. Maybe you did something hurtful. Maybe you know you did it. Maybe you just made a mistake. Maybe you just blundered or dropped the ball. Jesus is speaking to you and me when he says, you make the first move, you own as much as you possibly can before it gets just overly complicated and out of control, right? I mean, I've had people angry at me. Even angry where I, I had done things I didn't even know I did, right? I wasn't intentional, I just made a mistake. Man, on a good day, I could be a goober, right? Catch me on a bad day or without sleep, I could really make a lot of mistakes. I'm sure I'm capable of hurting a lot of people. If it's brought to my attention, that's the moment that I have this opportunity to own whatever I can and extend grace. Try to see reconciliation happen. And that's not easy for me, by the way, just like it's not easy for you. When people come to me and they say, hey, listen, you hurt me. You did this thing. If I don't agree with their hurt, it's going to be very easy for me to think in my mind, oh, yeah, well, that sounds like a you problem. That sounds like a big you problem that you should go figure out. I think I'm fine. I think I'm clean before the Lord. But that's not how the Bible leads us. This is what Paul says in Romans 12. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So as far as I can, as far as it was a sin or I've harmed them in some way, I need to own whatever I can. Here's where it gets difficult. That sounds difficult. That's not even difficult. Where it gets difficult is I need to do this without the expectation that they're going to do the same. They might not reciprocate, right? Don't we all apologize in big collisions? And then there's that pregnant pause on the backside of the apology where we kind of wait for them to apologize too, right? It was a great strategy for me in our first few years of marriage for me to apologize to my wife about something that I just was stupid at. And then after a second or two or 10, say, so you're sorry too, right? I mean, you're sorry too for what you did, right? Always worked. Great strategy. No, not really. Don't ever do that. What it shows is I wasn't sincere. I mean, I get it. But I mean, think about this for a moment. Owning a mess, owning a mess that you did not create, owning a mess with those who bring nothing to the table, is that not in itself the picture of the gospel truth for you and me? Owning a mess that you didn't create, reconciling with the culprit, is that not what has happened in the gospel? When Christ owns our mess on a cross, a people who bring absolutely nothing to the table. We're the culprits, and he reconciles with us. We're the ones that threw the rocks. He brings everything to the table. We bring absolutely nothing to the table. This is how we are called to handle anger and reconcile with our enemies. It's how we communicate the gospel of our hero who did so much for us that we would be reconciled to God. Even our anger strategy is a form and measure of the cross. I appreciate so much how Jesus is speaking to the offenders, 
not just the offended. He built a redundancy measure in this, right? What he says in the Bible, what he says in the New Testament is this. Hey, if you're angry, go and get that fixed. You got turbulence between you and someone else and you're angry, go and get that fixed. Oh, and then by the way, for the rest of you, if you know someone's angry with you, you go and get that fixed. He's doing it both ways. Why? It's how serious he takes this. Or else we'd be dorky about it, and we'd say, well, I'm sorry, there still is anger, but they haven't approached me yet, so we could have dealt with this a long time ago, but they really weren't mature enough, so there it is. I hope you're okay with that. Still anger. We would do that. I would do that. We would all do that. But here there's plural ownership of anger and offense and reconciliation. So we see very quickly that this is a primary value to God. Reconciliation. And if you were to drill down that word, all it means is enemies made friends, okay? Now that's a very simple definition of it. Very simple. But reconciliation is more important to Christ in this moment than ritual worship. Let that sink in. More important than this. Could you imagine if we took this seriously? I'm not going to do this today, but what if I, along with every other pastor in the city, said this? Hey, listen, I know there's a lot of jank between you and others. Don't even come next week until you get that solved. In fact, don't even come back until you get all of that solved. What do you think would happen this week? There'd be a lot of uncomfortable phone calls, wouldn't there? There'd be a lot of tense meetings at Starbucks. Somebody that made you angry or someone that you might have made angry. There would also be a lot of empty parking spots next Sunday. That's what would happen. But at least the enemy would lose a foothold. At least there would be countless moments of reconciliation, countless moments where the gospel is displayed in a very fresh way. Don't treat a secondary what God is very clearly treating as primary right here. That's what you're supposed to carry away from that. He doesn't just say it's primary. He says deal with it quickly before it gets dumb, right? Before it gets out of control. Paul says in Ephesians 4, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Okay, can we talk about this passage for a minute? It's confusing for people, right? I don't think it's a bad principle. What Paul is saying is his anger is dangerous as an emotion. And we should not get in the practice of grooming it into some commercial-grade professional grudge, Right? Get quick about dealing with it because over time, knots get tighter. They don't get looser and they get harder to deal with. So get it done quickly. I will say this sometimes though. I do believe sometimes it's good to let the sun go down on anger, maybe a few times. Let me explain. We're not dishonoring this passage. Paul is not talking about reconciliation in a circadian cycle between sunrise and sunset. That's not happening right here. I mean, just think about it just, just biologically. There are places on Earth, you get up around the Arctic Circle, the sun just does weird things. It won't show up for like four months, or it'll be there for six months, and you can't get rid of it. It's longer at the equator than it is up there. That's not what he's talking about right here. It's a colloquial way of saying, don't tarry. Don't take a long time to do something that is hard. Get it done quick. Get it done fast, as fast as you possibly can. But can we agree that sometimes after a really hard collision and you're exhausted and you just want some space to come back and be a human being and talk about it as an adult. But sometimes that helps. You're weird. You just want to be a grown-up about it. You're easily provoked. 
You'll say dumb things if you just keep working through it right there in that moment, right there in that second. I mean, listen, if you're married in this room, there's probably going to be one of you that is going to want to be really fast at dealing with uh, discontent, with just contention between the two. And then there's going to be another one of you that's probably, I'm generalizing, probably okay with going in a room for like nine hours and just not doing anything, right? And then there's just, there's this tension between the two of you of, well, I think we should deal with this right now. Well, I don't even want to look at your face right now. How about that? How about the door's right there right now? And it ends up like that. And it doesn't help to just kind of make that happen, to force that to happen. Sometimes when anger is fresh, we say stupid things. Sometimes perspective wins. I am obviously talking about a small percentage of, of issues, a very small percentage. Because listen, time isn't going to fix that contention you have. Time isn't going to fix that anger you have. Years won't fix that anger you have. The gospel fixes the anger you have. The Holy Spirit changes your heart. That's how you contend with that anger. Not just time. Let me be clear. I think the bulk of our injuries and anger and rage need to be worked out that same day. The bulk of them, right? Don't get angry with your spouse and give her the silent treatment and then blame it on me. Don't do that. And hear me, friends. Listen, if you disagree with me on this, I'd never get in a slap fight with anyone over this passage. I just wouldn't do it, right? But I believe some anger comes from situations that take time to parse out, just even to discern what is appropriate and what is inappropriate in your anger. I mean, I could introduce you to some sexual abuse victims. They're still trying to figure out what part of their anger is appropriate and which part of their anger is inappropriate. The sun has gone down a few times. They're still working through it, right? Sometimes anger is very appropriate, and we need time to work through where it can grow sinful, where we're giving the enemy a foothold where he is destroying us in that anger, where parts of our anger glorify God and where parts of our anger destroy everybody around us and burn everything down. But the Bible is very clear. Be quick. Be quick or it gets messy. It gets dangerous. Be speedy. Stop stalling. And if you are waiting, why? Why are you waiting? Because remember, the enemy loves it. Every day that goes by, every minute, he loves it. He'll take anything you give him. Be fast. Be fast. But one thing I think we can all agree upon, if you've been angry, forgiving someone who has provoked you into that anger, that might be a process that you have to do a billion times, right? Forgiving them, I mean. Because we forgive people, we carry our offense to the foot of the cross, and then we just we pick it back up later on. We don't even mean to do it, right? I mean, I still do that. I, I still have people that I have to forgive dozens and dozens of times. I'm still working through this. And when I forgive somebody, it doesn't mean that I don't mean it if I pick it back up. It just means I have a hard time staying there. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's six minutes. Maybe it's six weeks later. And then I realize, whoops, maybe I haven't forgiven that person. Maybe I've got a little bit more work to do. And i got to carry that offense right back to the same cross and put it at the feet of Jesus. It takes a while. It takes a while. But hear me, legacy. There is room for us to leave anger behind today. There's room for us to turn in our anger today. I want you to ask yourself, what are you raging at? Who are you insulting? Where is your vindictive heart aimed? Where are you bitter? Jaded, what are you withdrawing from? What do you feel like is being stolen from you, taken from you, threatened, endangered? Is your anger proportionate 
or is it inappropriate at this point, right? Who do you need to have a hard talk with this week? Are you okay having that talk if they don't apologize back? Can you do it if they don't reciprocate? Here's my challenge. Pretty soon we're gonna be singing and taking communion, right? Hugging each other, writing checks, praying. We're gonna be doing the things we do as we respond to God's glory in this moment. What I want you to do is my challenge is just to consider this. You might need to approach somebody this week. You might need to approach somebody in this room. You might need to approach me. I might have hurt you. You entered this room with something, an anger. It's not that some people are angry. We're all angry, right? It's important that we speed, speedily work through that. And listen, if you're in here and you are not a part of legacy, maybe you're not even a Christian. Maybe you're just checking this thing out, kicking tires on Christianity. You're searching, you're wondering, you ask a lot of questions. We're very glad that you're here. I will say that there is room for salvation in this passage where Jesus owns the mess of people who will never pay him back. He owns the mess. He's responsible for a mess he doesn't even create. He takes the responsibility, right? So when you come to the cross, you need to understand the only thing that you really contribute in the cross is your dire need for him, right? And then when God reconciles you and makes you as an enemy, as you entered this room, makes you an enemy into a friend, that is done through the work of Jesus. It's done through him. You entered this room as an enemy in the dark, you can leave as a friend and as a child of light. And if you feel like your heart is being drawn to God, it's the Holy Spirit doing a work in you, don't push that down. Don't even kick the can down the street. You need to answer that. And, and, and my prayer is, is that it would even be regeneration, that God, even now and today, would be just relocating that, that heart of stone out of your chest and bringing in a heart of flesh that you would feel and respond. And go ahead and stand up with me. I'm going to pray for all of you in a moment, but... Just as we enter this time of worship, I just want you to think forward where we can celebrate a day where there is no more anger. I don't even know what that looks like, by the way. It's a good exercise to sit and try to dream a little bit. A world with no hostility, with no anger. That's fascinating. Nothing jeopardized, nothing threatened, no forgiveness needed, reconciliation is finished, no more hostility. I wouldn't even know where to start. We have no idea what this would be like because anger is our normal. But can we agree that that's pretty cool that God is building a home for you and me where there is no more bitterness? That is pretty cool. So let's keep that in our imagination. Know that Jesus has called us to build that here on earth. A Polaroid, a snapshot of the place being prepared for you and me, a place of zero bitterness. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for being very clear with us in this passage. Very clear on how you look at anger, inappropriate anger, how you look at unjustifiable anger, and how that root can take so many different shapes and forms and how we could dress it up in so many different ways with all of the different textures of personalities, as many people are in this room, we have that many different ways of expressing anger. 
And Lord, I pray that you would help us see where it is that we rage the most in our heart. What is being threatened the most? What do we love and must have? And now that it's being taken away, we rage. We fume. We foam inside. Lord, help us see that. And give us the courage through your Holy Spirit to have some hard conversations. Not just with others, but with you. For Lord, I could be angry at you. I could be angry at you, my neighbor, my family, my everything. Lord, give us courage as your people to have hard conversations and to own whatever we can, as far as we can, and to give grace in those moments, not expecting anything in return. And in that, we share a moment with you where you came and you owned a mess that culprits caused that were not you, and you took ownership of that for our good. And we would never be able to reciprocate. So, Lord, we love you and we thank you for being so clear with us in this passage. And, Father, I pray for the regeneration of hearts, not just in this room but in this city this morning. Lord, that there would be men and women and children that are born again with a new heart, with a new beautiful in front of them, where whatever they found beautiful before is eclipsed by the beauty of who you are. Well, we love you and we thank you. You're so very good to us. And as we take communion together as a church, as we go back in our little pockets of families and roommates and friends, Lord, let us heed our words that reconciliation is even more important than that, even more important than ritual worship. Help us take primary what you take primary. Well, we love you and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.